Here we go, rejecting the screen, the Going ISO edition, as we do every week. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out West, Adam Stenko. Also out West, Don McClain, the 19th overall pick in the 1992 NBA Draft, 1994 Most Improved Players, the Pac-12 all-time leading scorer. So much to get to. And Don, we've talked to you before, and we've gone deep into the UCLA days. I want to go back a little bit further to start this one. I'm watching the Americans right now, and so I'm pretty fascinated with this whole Russian spy thing. And in 88, you played on an AAU team as part of a Soviet tour. Were you at, Were you in the Soviet Union playing basketball? No, we never went to the Soviet Union. Uh. Um, I don't think that ever materialized, to be honest, because we didn't, we didn't play the Russians, and we didn't obviously go there. Um, but there was talk of it. I remember that. All right, so you were, you were supposed to play that? I think so. You know, it was a long time ago. I remember that there was something to that, but it never materialized. Who was on that AAU team with you? Uh, Sean Kemp, Chris Mills, Derek Martin, um, Doug Meekins, who played at Washington. Um, it was a pretty good team. James Moses, who played at Iowa. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of people say that's one of the best AAU teams ever. Um, just because we played for an entire season. And that's back when you could bring guys from out of state. Obviously, Sean Kemp wasn't from Southern California, but he was a, obviously the biggest part of our team on that team. Well, I mean, you're you're pretty big too, Don. And if you talk about uh, things that did materialize, I want to go even further back than that. You've shared it with me before, but you can tell Noah now and and, and our audience the the letter that you wrote when you were in school about what was going to happen throughout your life. Can you share that with us? I, I wrote one. It was basically, what do you want to be when you grow up type of uh, essay, I guess you'd call it. It was in third and fourth grade. And it essentially said, um, I used to have it on my wall. I don't have it anymore. My wife made made me a thing for my 40th birthday and actually put the two things that I wrote on this big picture that she made but it essentially said that I was going to play in the NBA. It said that I was going to break Kareem's record, which I didn't break his NBA record, obviously, but the UCLA one. Um, and that I was going to play for the Philadelphia 76ers, who at the time in, you know, the late seventies, early eighties were really good team. And that, that stuff almost kind of almost all came true, which is really, really uh, kind of weird in a way when you're talking about being in third and fourth grade. Yeah, that's nuts. So when I was, I grew up in Philadelphia, and I remember when you came over to the Sixers, and, and I was talking to one of your former teammates yesterday and asked him about your time in Philadelphia, and he said that he couldn't buy a shot when that season started. And then, well, Michael, and then Michael Cage told him to eat some wheatgrass, and he was all good from there? <laughs> <laughs> no, what happened was is I actually had a really good preseason, and then I got hurt like three or four games into the season mm -hmm. and was out for, I don't know, a month or something. And then when I came back, you know, I was under the pressure of a new long-term deal, five-year contract. So I was feeling that trying to, you know, like a lot of players do, um, try to play, play to the level of that contract. And so I put a ton of pressure on myself when I came back and just couldn't buy it, but I'll never forget this. I will never forget this. What happened? So I struggled for, I'm going to say, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 games, maybe even. And then we're in Detroit. And, and I tell people this all the time, players, guys that play in my program and just guys I get to talking to. 
I get a fast break layup in Detroit early in the game, just a layup out in front of everybody, laid it up. And from then on, like couldn't miss. That's how much it flipped. I went from probably averaging four or five points a game in that 10 game stretch to averaging like 22 over the next 12 games. Hmm. And, and I remember that layup in Detroit just turned everything around one, one stinking layup. Well, Don, you, you were never hurting for confidence. So, um, <laughs> first, first time that, that you got a chance to play against, against pros, I know you scrimmaged in a game against or practiced or scrimmaged a pickup game against James Worthy. Yeah. Basically that story goes when, when you go to UC, well, first of all, the, the UCLA men's gym has been, was the Mecca for pickup games pretty much in the country for years and years and years. And so when I decided to go to UCLA, they have a freshman summer program to get you on campus early and you take a couple of classes, get them out of the way. And so when I got there for freshman summer program, first day in the gym at that time, you know, it's 1988. Um, you know, that's James Worthy, Michael Cooper, Magic Johnson. It's all those guys. And so first game, first day, and I should tell the audience the way the men's gym worked was you could only play if you were a pro or you played at UCLA. And so that was the advantage we had as players at UCLA is we always got on. Like that was a rule. Like we, I don't care if there was 25 NBA all-stars there, we still got to, to be on. And so the first day, my first game, I was matched up with James Worthy, who at the time was, you know, James Worthy in 1988. And so I have a friend that, you know, Adam, that, that came later in the day in, um, or later, yeah, later in the day, and I was off or waiting to get on or whatever. And um, he came over to me. He's like, "How's it going?" I'm like, "Yeah, it's going pretty good." He's like, "Who'd you play so far today?" I said, "Wow, first game right out of the gate, I had James Worthy." And he's <laughs> like, "How'd you do?" I'm like, "Man, couldn't guard him. Like, guy's too fast. He's too quick." And he goes, "He's like, but how'd you do?" I'm like, "Oh, he couldn't guard me either." <laughs> 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 which, which, truth be told, the Laker guys were probably playing at 75% in the summertime at that point, especially against some 195-pound skinny white kid from Simi Valley at UCLA. Dom, what, what does that look like, the, the pickup games? What do they actually look like when you get into it in terms of the level of competition, the trash talk, um, you depends know, how on, guys are playing? Depends on who's there. Like if Magic was there, it was high level and a lot of us talking, a lot. If he wasn't there, it was still pretty high level. And it just depended on some of the matchups. As you guys know, having played pickup and watched pickup, I'm sure, you know, a bad call could set people off. You know, like a, they used to call it a phantom call back in those days that if a guy called a foul that wasn't a foul, that stuff can get things going. So it was different every day, but it was – it was pretty good stuff. And, and the reason I said when we first started talking about this, there was no other pickup games. If you were a pro, that's where you played. It was, there was no practice facilities at that time. There was nowhere else. You're not going to go play in the parks. So if you were going to play five on five, you were going to play in the men's gym. You remember the best bit of shit talking that you remember from those games? Oh, man, there was so much. When Reggie Miller came, that he would spark it up too. Um, I don't remember any instances. But back then, I think it's a little different than now. Like it was just part of the game. Like, it, like if if there was a ton of if there was a ton of talking going on, it's just like if guys were making shots. You know, it's just like mm -hmm. oh, okay, everybody's talking crap to each other. So 
I don't remember an instance, but it was definitely there most days. What was it like being on the court with Magic at that age? Well, I have another good story about Magic, and this is this this one, and I still give him, I still give him crap every time I see him about it. So one day, games were to seven by ones. All it was all ones, and so I'm playing Magic, and you know he had a history of. He'd take any other four guys and stay on the main court the whole day. Like he would not lose. He did. He, and, and I don't ever remember him losing a game, honestly. And so this one time I'm guarding him. It's game point six, six. He called 13 straight fouls on game point. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you about what? six of them were really fouls. And what's, what's funny is the game ended when I didn't, I, I fouled him on purpose because he was going to, he was like getting by me and he like chucked up because he knew it was a foul. He threw it up over his head and, his went, and it went in. And that's the only reason why the game ended or we'd probably still be playing. And I, and I said after, I'm like magic. So like if it's 6-6, six, six, we might as well just walk off the court. He goes, yeah, you might as well. <laughs> <laughs> 13 straight fouls. 13 straight. That's stupid. What about, what about playing pickup with Michael? With Michael, um, not a lot of, but but I have a story, and Adam knows this story. I've told it. It's actually in Pat Williams' book that he wrote about Michael Jordan. Um, and and it's, and it's if you've been watching The Last Dance, this story will kind of sum up a lot of the stories that have come up on the show. Um, so along the same lines of the UCLA men's gym, at the time when he was filming Space Jam, what was that ninety five? I think it was. Um, they built him a basketball court on the Warner Brothers lot. It was a big bubble. So it was like a tent and it had a full court basketball court and weights and everything. And so, but he couldn't play until nighttime. So there was a lot of guys still playing at three o'clock at the men's gym, but he was recruiting players to come play at night. Um, and I didn't go for the first couple of weeks just because I like, I had a schedule and I like getting my work out of the way earlier and whatever. And, and so the first night I went there, um, it was the, we played throughout the night. There was only one court, so there was a lot of sitting around because a lot of guys wanted to play over there. Um, so it's the last game of the night. And similar to Magic, Michael never lost. Now, he'd take any four players, didn't matter, give me any four, and I'm staying on the court the whole night. So it's the last game of the night, and you only played Monday through Thursday, and it was Thursday night. And so I'm like my third year in the league. So I'm, I'm already kind of established as an NBA player, and you know, but I'm no superstar by any means. I'm an average NBA player. Um, and so we get going and he's matched up with me, Michael, last game of the night. And I got loose and scored like six and, and he wasn't playing me, playing me. He was playing like passing lanes and, you know, just playing team defense, trying to get steals. But anyways, I got loose and scored like six of our nine points and we won the game. And I remember after the game going, I can't believe we just won. Like nobody wins when Michael's <laughs> on the court. And so game ends, I go sit down, and I'm like taking off my shoes and icing my knees. And I didn't know Michael. I, I knew him like a, hey, what's up kind of deal. And he comes over to me and he says, hey, Don, are you uh, coming back next week? And I said, you know what? I'm going to Japan to do some clinics next week. And I was. And so he's like, all right, well, yeah, when you get back, make sure you come back. And I'm like, and I'm sitting there going, well, that was pretty cool of him to come over and, you know, say that. And wow. So didn't think about it again go to Japan. I didn't come back for like two and a half weeks. And first game of the night, I'm on. And there's three other guys on his team that should be guarding me. He walks on the court and says, I got McLean. <laughs> and literally, 
it wasn't a, he wasn't going to let me score. He didn't let me touch the ball. And pe- what people don't realize, and I, you know, they talked about his weight, his weightlifting a couple episodes ago. He was one of the strongest guys I've ever played against, if not the strongest. And so if he didn't want me to get the ball, I wasn't getting the ball. And I walked away that night saying to myself, my God, this guy in a, in a meaningless pickup game waited for me for two and a half weeks to come back so that he could exact his revenge because we somehow beat his team on the last game of the night on Thursday night, two and a half weeks before. Incredible. Noah, more from Don in a moment, but you know today's episode of Rejecting the Screen is brought to you by Built Bar, and I got to tell you, these Built Bar uh, bars have energy bars. They've they've been incredible. They went really quick in my house. My my kids just housed them. Uh, I've mentioned before, but two teenage daughters and they are working out like crazy while we're dealing with the quarantine. And they are just going through these bars left and right. Um, it's incredible. I, there's literally nothing left. My wife and I are like, what, what's the deal? Thought you were going to save stuff for <laughs> us. But between, you know, there's raspberry and peanut butter and and the uh, mint chocolate. It was incredible how many good flavors there are. And they they loved them all. Right now, promo code locked on gets you $10 off your first box of Built Bars. So unbelievable they are the best tasting bars you really have to experience it for yourself they i didn't think it was possible especially because the sugar is so low in these things and usually you know you're talking cliff bars and that those other bars that the people will use workout bars like sugar's way higher and meanwhile don't taste as good so built bar absolutely the way to go go to builtbar.com use promo code locked on ten dollars off your first box at www.billbar.com. As I was researching for this pod, some things I didn't know, your rookie season with the Bullets, you were playing in a game in December in which Jordan went for 57 points and 10 assists. What are your memories of that, that game? Well, by that point, we all obviously knew Michael Jordan and how great he was. And I remember the first time we played them, you know, because I hadn't seen them live. I want. I wanted to watch for myself, like, what makes this guy so great? And you didn't understand the mental side because that's what really made him great. You couldn't see that when you're playing against him or playing in a game. Like, the stories like I just told and the other stories you hear really explain why he was so great. But um, I don't remember the 57 and 10, but I remember the first time we played them. I didn't play a lot as a rookie. Um, but I got into the first time we played them, the first time that season, and somehow – I was I was guarding him at the end of the clock of the end of the first half. So and it's like at that time there's no zone. So I'm playing he's he's dribbling picture him dribbling at half court dribbling the clock down and I'm standing there in front of him. And I vividly remember saying to myself, "Holy shit. What's going to happen here?" And I'm like, "I hope somebody comes to help." And sure enough, he starts to drive and all my teammates knew I couldn't guard anybody anyway. So they came and doubled, and he passed it away. But that was my first introduction to Michael Jordan being matched up to him at the end of the clock, at the end of the half. And, um, but, yeah, he's, he was something to watch. And I, I'm just happy that all these people are getting to see and, and are reminded of just how great he was. And maybe those of us that played in the 90s are a little biased, but I think this documentary's 
opening some eyes in terms of when you start having debates about who's the greatest of all time. Do you remember any of that back and forth between Jordan and Isaiah? Uh, not so much. I don't, you know, I wasn't on either of those teams, but I do remember that, that, and I try and I've tried to explain to my kids and people that I have conversations with about basketball, just how different it was back then. Guys weren't shaking hands. Guys weren't hugging each other. It was, I, and I don't care what team or, or what player it was. You walked on the court looking to kick somebody's ass, like period. I mean, there were some guys that were friends, but it was like your job, you're playing for money and like, it's on. It ain't, I, I, I don't need to shake your hand before the game. I'll shake your hand after, but not before. And so that's, and the reason I'm saying all that is I think when, when you start with that, it can only escalate into bad things, like more, more intensity, more physical, more, all that, more stuff. And a lot of the times it did. Dud, on the, on the MJ thing, like you talk about his greatness as somebody who's now, like I've, I've called you the preeminent NBA draft workout guy. I mean, you've had everybody, Carl Anthony Towns, Donovan Mitchell, D'Angelo Russell, Devin Booker, you name it. Um, you, I think, are more dialed into what the game was like then compared to what it is now. What what are some of the, I guess, differences that you see like on the court that might not be obvious to to the average fan? Three-point shot is way more prevalent. Like, and, and that didn't change till like five years ago. You know, I've been doing pre-draft for like 15 years now. And in about five or six years ago, I started hearing about teams working out like centers, like 6'11 guys, seven-foot guys, and they're putting them behind the three-point line. Because um, you knew – they knew that's where the game was headed. And so that's the biggest thing for me. And even when you watch like this last dance documentary, you don't see a ton of threes. Like, like Michael, what did he make in that game with the last, he made like seven and that was like a big deal. Now it's like, mm -hmm. if a guy makes seven, that's just, oh, okay. He had a pretty good game. Um, and so that to me is the biggest difference. It, if you're, you know, the size of your position and your level of skill but mostly being able to space the floor and be able to shoot. And I tell people, if you can't shoot, you can't play in the league anymore. I mean, there are some specialists like, like a Montrez Harrell that just have a, a plus plus one skill in terms of effort and rebounding and toughness that can get away without being able to shoot, but they're very few. So that to me is the biggest difference. And some of those old school guys will speak out against the players from today and, and really focus on the commitment from spending so much time with the with this generation of players, where do you see their commitment as compared to when you played? Well, I'm in the middle of this debate. You know, you, you, you start hearing about load management and you hear these guys that I played with and against in the 90s start teeing off on these guys for load management. It, I will say that you have to appreciate how tough guys were in the 90s to play through injuries and try and play. I mean, I didn't realize this, that Jordan played all 82 for three three seasons in a row, plus playoffs. I mean, that's mm -hmm. insane if you think mm -hmm. about that, averaging 30-plus a night. I mean, that's insanity if you, if, you, if you take a look at that now that we're in 2020. So I appreciate all that, and, and I do think that it's gotten a little bit softer in that sense, but I also believe that medicine's gotten smarter, uh, performance training's gotten smarter, and so I, I understand the load management part of it, but you also have to appreciate, if you're going to understand the load management, you better appreciate just how much more difficult it was back then when guys played through what they played through.
All right, so let me tell you about my secret weapon for learning new things and getting ahead a little bit. So we don't have a whole lot of free time. No matter what people tell you now during these times, like, oh, I've got time to do everything. No, no. There's not a whole lot of free time. And because of that, it's difficult to sit down, take the time to read, certainly work on personal development. And now there's an app that solves that. And I highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. It's unique and it works right on your phone, your tablet, web browser. It takes the best key takeaways, all of that need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and then condenses them all down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. So you don't need to have a ton of free time. You just need the 15 minutes to do so. So I've listened to the four hour work week, Tim Ferriss, the Tiger Woods book by Jeff Benedict. And right now you can get unlimited access to read or listen to their massive library of these condensed nonfiction books. Limited time, Blinkist special offer for our audience only. If you go to Blinkist.com slash NBA, you can try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. So Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash NBA, Start your free seven-day trial, and you'll also get 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash NBA. Allah Abdul-Nabi brought up a point on the podcast a few weeks ago that I thought was interesting that, again, that like average fans don't really think about. like Playing big minutes in an NBA game and just how hard that is and putting up a ton of shots in a, in a game. Um, what can you say about about how difficult it is to play 40 minutes in an NBA game and why that's such a, a challenge that people probably just don't realize that that haven't played in the league. Well, again, and I think it's a little different back then when I played, the game was much more physical and people are seeing that in this documentary too, just how much more you know guys got away with stuff and how you could lean on guys more and just be more physical. Um, I never felt like playing 40 minutes was a problem and every, every body type is different. Guys can handle like, like Carl Malone never got hurt. Why? Cause look at him. I mean, he's built for whatever. Um, but other guys like me got hurt all the time. Cause my body wasn't really built to play 82 games and play a ton of minutes. Um, but for me, I always found that the 40 minutes wasn't the problem. It was, it was, it was running it back the next night, like back to backs and me weren't great. Um, just because of again, body type. And I felt like I was in great condition but it's just I couldn't – my body didn't recover from the 40 minutes fast enough to be great the next night. And what's great, you know, in that same conversation, what I was just talking about with medicine getting better and, and performance, like guys are much more equipped now to handle back-to-backs. And the ironic part is they've gotten rid of so many back-to-backs. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, they have all the tools now, and now they don't really need them because there isn't hardly any back-to-backs. I want to get into your playing career a bit more. and. and- when you're with the Bullets, your rookie year, George Murasan and Manute Bull on the team, correct? Yes, but Manute was only a couple 10 days. And okay. um, he wasn't on the roster the whole season, but that was, was some of the funnest stuff I've ever watched. Because um, Murasan, you know, he was a big deal for a while. You know, there wasn't a lot of 7'6 yeah. guys. Bull had already been in the league. So Bull felt kind of threatened, I think, by george a little bit and, and especially because george was on the roster and nudie wasn't he was on you know trying to find a job so we bring him in on a 10 day and adam i think i've told you this before that 
when when Manute was on his 10 days, him and Murasan would play one-on-one before every game. And Murasan beat him every time. And so, and this is early, like an hour and a half before the game, and every single time, Bowl would come in the locker room and start throwing stuff around because he was so mad that he lost to Murasan in one-on-one every time. It was hilarious. It's funny. <laughs> I, I was looking up your, your second season, um, the sixth game of the year, was actually was was Murasan's first ever NBA game. You went for 38 that night, Don. 13 of 15 shooting against the Bucks. Yeah. Brad Lowhouse yeah. is still having nightmares about that. <laughs> <laughs> Best part is I had Wes Unseld, your coach at the time, had a quote in the Washington Post. He said, I don't know how I'm going to live with Don after tonight. <laughs> he said uh, who, he said he had taken he had taken McLean to task for his score first score second score last mentality. He said, "quote There's no doubt he could shoot the ball, but he also made some nice passes, and we ran some plays for him." So Wes gave you uh, some compliments after well, going I, for thirty. I had been games. on I had been on Wes. You know, back up to what I said earlier. I didn't play a lot as a rookie, and I'd been lobbying Wes the whole year. I mean, we weren't any good, and it's. You know, I was a fourth quarter king my rookie year. We'd be down by 30, and I'd come in and get 15 to 18 every fourth quarter. Um, so they knew I could score. And then so when we came back for when I came back for my second year, I'd really worked on my body, got myself in great condition, and wanted the opportunity to play. And I don't think he had planned on playing me. They had drafted Calbert Cheney with the sixth pick, I believe, mm-hmm. um, that spring. And so he was kind of penciled in as a small forward. And I came back so ready to play that after training camp and a few preseason games, I'd kind of earned that starting spot. And so, and I was given, you know, back then coaches and players were a little different, I think, but I was giving West shit the whole time that, Hey, you, you thought I was going to be your eighth man. And here I am starting for you. You get hazed by any of the vets your rookie year? Not so much. I mean, the two main guys on that team were Purvis Ellison and Harvey Grant. Um, mm-hmm. And Harvey had just gotten paid. Um, and so, you know, they were good. They were good. You know, they were the two highest paid, two, you know, leading scorers on the team. And they were, their nature wasn't to give guys, you know, a bunch of shit. They just, yeah, I mean, I, I think we had some, we had some duties. We had to perform like getting donuts in the morning or something like that. But it, I don't remember it being anything over the top. And the good news for me is I had two other rookies, Gugliata and Brent Price. So I, it oh, wasn't right. just me. One other guy that, that you ended up playing on the Bullets with later is Juwan Howard. And you guys, people have talked about that the rivalry between you guys in practice was just unmatched. Um, what, what do you remember about that? Well, similar to what I was saying a few minutes ago about me, you know, being penciled in as something else. So I'm basically coming off my most improved player award and they drafted Juwan. And kind of penciled him in as the starter. And so when practices start, I'm not giving up my starting job and Juwan's trying to take it. And again, going back to the last dance, you see how physical things were back then, especially if you got me not letting him take my job, him wanting my job. It's physical in practice. Things escalated a lot um, just, for those, just for that reason. Um, and so th- the great thing was, is Juwan's such a good dude you know, I'm not such a great dude, but I think in this instance, <laughs> I think in this instance, we would fight, but then go to lunch after. Mm-hmm. And that's how it was back then. Like it was understood that fights happen, fights can happen. 
But if you're a good teammate and, and you guys and you have a, a, a good locker room, then the end result is you're, you're still friends. You're still going to hang out and you might fight again tomorrow just because. But if you can, if you can be man enough and mature enough to, to leave it on the court. And for the most part, that's what me and Juwan did. And when I see him now, we're, we're great. How do you, what was Don, it? How do you, oh, good, Dan. I was just gonna say, how do you how do you separate that in terms of like when the games start though? Like I'm always curious about that. So you're competitive as you are, and Jawan's competitive. So you guys are battling practice, sure, about who's getting the starting spot. Then the game starts, and and now you guys are teammates playing together, and he's getting the starting nod, or you're getting more minutes in a crunch time situation. Like how do you how do you compartmentalize it and go out and play in the games together then when you guys are battling like that in practice? Well, the funny part is, and I've been talking to people, and, and it was clear, Adam, you know, I wanted to start just because everybody wants to start, right? But by my third year in the league, it was clear that the best role for me was going to be sixth man, seventh man, come off the bench and score. It was crystal clear because I couldn't guard starting small forwards. Couldn't. And so we'd have to cross match and do all this stuff to kind of hide me defensively. Cause you couldn't zone back then. And so once it happened and I saw that I, I was going to be the sixth man and that a, I was coming off the bench. So I'm probably playing against some other second unit guy and B some of the starters are on the bench. Guess what? I'm probably getting the shots. And at that point in, in, in that year, it became clear that when I was healthy, which is hardly ever that, being a sixth, seventh man was what I would be best at. So in all of that, um, it turned out to be good. But to answer your question, you're not, when you're in the league, you are not rooting against other people so that you get more, you get better. You're worried about your own individual performance. And if your individual performance helps the team win, that helps you as well. And I think everybody understood that at that time, that if you did well and the team did well, you'll kind of get what you want. Speaking of teammates, what was it like having Weber around? He was great right after man. that trade. I, I, I love C Web. You know, the problem with that trade was is I was really close with Gugliotta. And so I hated mm. to see him go. We had come in the league together and hung out a lot together and done a lot of stuff together. Um, so from that standpoint, it was a bummer when it happened. But, you know, it's funny. C Web was hurt a lot. I forget, I forget what year it was for him, but me and him were hurt a lot one year. I think it was my third year. Um, like the back half of the year. And so he and I sat on the bench and, and watched a lot together. And we really got to know each other and, and spent a lot of time talking about a lot of things. And um, so he was a great teammate, not a good teammate, a great teammate. Mm -hmm. Do you remember, speaking of last dance and, and guys getting traded, do you remember the trade rumors? I found a story in the Washington Post about this just the other day about Pippen being involved in a deal with you. I didn't, I didn't, um, Adam texted me that the other day and I didn't, oh. I didn't, I didn't remember that. Um, but I think there's a lot of, I think when you're in the league and you know, it's part of the business until it, you really start to hear it, you're not really paying attention to that stuff because there's so much chatter about trades and who might get traded that you're more just kind of focused on what you're trying to do more than anything. Since you you were traded so many times during your career, yeah. do you have, do you have, one that stands out, like, I can't believe I'm finding out I'm getting traded this way. I think for me, you know, because I'd gotten traded from Washington to Denver, 
had a pretty good year in Denver, was a free agent, wanted to stay in Denver, but that that franchise was going through some changes in their front office. Bernie Bickerstaff got fired, uh, but I still wanted to be there. And I signed with Philadelphia thinking, okay, you sign a five-year contract, probably going to be there for a while. And I played one year in Philly and then got traded again. And that's that's when I was frustrated that I, I only got one year to be there. And then I'm moving on again to New Jersey um, with not really an opportunity in New Jersey. It didn't seem like, um, and that was the trade that really, that really bummed me out the most. How did you find out you got traded? Uh, how did I find that one out? I remember I was working out in the gym and I think my agent called me, someone hmm. called me, but yeah, I was, I remember being in the gym and I was, and I was like halfway through my workout. And when I heard, I just like sat down on the court. It was like, just so frustrated that it was happening again. Because what people don't understand, it's like when you get traded and you have to go to a new city, you're starting all over again. You got to figure out where the airport is and you got to figure out where the practice facility is, where the arena is, where you're, you know, where, figure out new restaurants to eat at, all that stuff that takes time. And it's such a pain um, to do it. And I did it. I think four or five years in a row where I yeah. was in a new city, like four or five years straight. In, in Philly, you get rookie Iverson that year, year two of Stackhouse. What do you remember of about Johnny Davis trying to work it out with those two guys on the floor together? What's funny about that is we had a great locker room for the most part, but Johnny didn't have control of the locker room, if that makes sense. Mm. Like we all liked each other. I loved AI. I loved Stack. I loved Derek Coleman. I loved Doug Overton, Cage, Scott Williams, all those guys. And we all seemed to like each other. It's just he didn't have control of the team. And so we didn't win maybe as much as we should have. Um, because guys were kind of on their own program when it got to the court. And, you know, there wasn't there there just wasn't a lot of I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, not anyone individually. It's just when you're on a team where there's where the coach doesn't really have control, guys are just kind of out there on their own doing their thing. What's your best Iverson story, Don? When I signed there, they're like, yeah, they had the number one pick and they got Allen Iverson. And I and I at that time I wasn't following the college game that close. And I but I've seen it myself because I knew the league now and I knew kind of, you know, what worked and who good players were. And I'm like saying to myself, how the heck is a six-one guy the number one pick in the draft? Like, how is that possible? And so, obviously, people, because he was like the consensus number one pick, so everybody couldn't have been wrong. So, anyways, we go have this mini camp in Atlantic City about in August um, before training camp just to get everybody on the same page. And, you know, we have a lot of new coach and a lot of new players and whatever. And I'll never forget – as I'm thinking, going into this first practice, like, I, I need to see this Iverson, man. Like, in five minutes, you're like, oh, my God. Like, cross, cross, boom, boom, at the rim. And, like, nobody can stay in front of him. And, and the thing that really stood out, what people don't realize, is how long his arms were. So, like, you would think, and I remember I got switched on to him a couple times, and I thought, okay, I'm close enough. He's 6'1", I'm 6'9". Like, I'm going to be able to block this shot. And because his arms are so long, he can create separation on like a fadeaway where you think you're getting to his release point and it's way higher than you think it's going to be. Mm. Same thing at the rim. You think he's going to like finger roll it underneath the rim and all of a sudden he's over the rim putting it in. And so 
just from a physical standpoint. And in the last, and the other thing is, is I in watching him through that season, just he speaking of playing forty and how that affect. Like he could play forty, he could have played another forty that night. He <laughs> never got tired, and he was the toughest pound for pound. And people have said this, so I'm not I'm not the first mm-hmm. one to say this, but I saw it for a year. Pound for pound, the toughest kid I've ever seen play basketball. I mean, he got knocked to the ground. He got, and again, the play back then was way more physical. He's six one, what a buck seventy five, buck eighty, and he's just getting. And and that was the game plan with him: is be physical with him, be physical with him, and wear him down. He never got worn down. It was incredible. Just speaking of characters, like going from Philly to New Jersey and playing for for John Calipari. And Adam had told me, Adam had told me just the other day that he recruited you at Pitt. So let's yeah. go, let's go back in time. What was the Pitt recruiting pitch like from John Calipari? So they had had the year before, um, and he was an assistant under Paul Evans. He had recruited Sean Miller was a point guard. Jason Matthews was the two. Brian Shorter was the four. And, and, um, Bobby Martin was the five. They needed the three. They needed the three, the shooting three. And so Calipari got on me early. And it's no surprise that John Calipari is John Calipari now. It was obvious. I mean, for him to be able to get a skinny white kid from Simi Valley, California, to take an official <laughs> at Pittsburgh it tells you what kind of recruiter he is. Um but just relentless in, in everything he did recruiting wise. Um, but it was a good opportunity. You know, it's not like it was just, he recruited me out of nowhere. It, he really sold that fact of you'd be the starting three with these four, you know, pretty good returning sophomores. Don, speaking of uh, college recruitment, I also told Noah on that day about the fact that there was a chance that you almost went and played on that all time UNLV team. Um, what was your, what was your UNLV (laughs) recruiting story? Well, it was the same thing that they needed shooting, you know, from the wing position, they had Ogman, they had Larry Johnson, Anderson hunt. Um, and, and my high school coach and Tim Gergerich had been friends for a long time. And so, um, he was on me early as well with that same sales pitch. Look, we need perimeter shooting from that position. You'll come in, you'll play right away. And, and backing up on that. Um, in terms of recruiting, I looked at all the situations and I pretty much narrowed it down to where, if I was going to play as a freshman or not, for instance, Arizona recruited me hard, but Sean Elliott was still there. I wasn't going to play in front of Sean Elliott Mm -hmm. as a freshman. So they were out early, earlier, I should say. And so all five of these teams that I took officials on, there was a very good chance I was going to start as a freshman. Um, and did that by design. Like, I felt like, you know, if, if, if you, if, if you get the opportunity to play early, that's where you learn and that's where you get better. Not, not, you know, sitting on the bench, watching somebody. I, I've, I've always felt that like watching somebody play, you're not going to get better. Like you need right. to be doing it and learning how to get better. Um, and so, you know, with, with UNLV being UNLV at that time, um, it was, it was a hard turn down because, you know, they were, you knew that they were on the cusp of being like national contenders. And it just came down to the fact that I felt like UCLA was going to be even, even more of an opportunity to play as a freshman. 
And turns out it was kind of the right call because um, I don't think I would average 18 a game as a freshman at any of those other four places. <laughs> Do you remember anything about your, your visit to UNLV? I remember we went Anthony. They rotated hosts with me. Greg Anthony was with me one night. And I remember the coolest the, think about this, 1988 um, in Vegas. So shows were like a big deal. They, they mm -hmm. still are, but I think they were a bigger deal back then. We go to Siegfried and Roy, you know, the Tigers and, <laughs> yeah, and yes. all that in Vegas. And they welcomed me to the show, Siegfried and Roy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which was, you know, when you're 18, I was like, I didn't think it was that big of a deal. But now that I'm 50, I'm like, wow, Siegfried yeah. and Roy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that you, those UNLV teams captured America. What, what did you know about? Larry Johnson and, and Greg Anthony and Anderson Hunt and Stacy Ogman before you even were recruited to play there? Um, I played against Stacy Ogman in the CIF championship game at the sports arena when I was a sophomore and he was a senior. And mm. so Stacy being from Pasadena, I'd played a bunch against him um, throughout the years um, in AAU stuff. Uh, didn't know a lot about the other guys. Um, other than having watched them play on TV, remember Big Monday and the Big West was like the last game of the Big Monday. Mm -hmm. What was it? It was Big East, Big Ten in Big West. Yeah, exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. So the Big West game was every Monday night, and um, so obviously UNLV was probably on eight out of every ten Mondays. Um, didn't know a lot about them, but again, for me, it was more about looking at opportunity to. Um, you know, play as a freshman and, and have an impact. Don, I know you've spoken before about the idea that when you went to Pitt, you got a chance to play pickup with those guys on your on your visit. When you when you went to all those schools, was it the same thing at the time? Like, did you play pickup with the, the UNLV guys or any of the other schools you went to? No, I don't think you were allowed to at that point. The whole Pittsburgh thing was like an impromptu, and I was in like jeans and like tennis, tennis shoes, you know? It wasn't like... <laughs> It wasn't like we were in workout clothes. That was just like impromptu. I, I'm pretty sure you weren't allowed to because I didn't play at any other visit except for a Georgia Tech visit with Craig Neal as my host. Okay. We go, we're, we're, he takes me out, out. Like that was the only trip where I went out, out, you know, <laughs> yep. like yeah. to the bars and stuff, even though I wasn't supposed to. I was 18 years old. So me and Craig wind up in this bar where there's like a half court basketball court and you know we'd had a couple and so we start playing two on two with a couple guys and Craig Neal's a senior at Georgia Tech and so we end up playing these two guys and you know they're they're looking at us saying I think they knew who Craig was like we're gonna beat these guys so this guy starts really guarding me and <laughs> And I'm not going to say it wasn't intentional, but I'm not going to say it was intentional either. I end up like ripping through, sweeping through, and I, and I get this guy's nose with my elbow. And it's bleeding <laughs> like everywhere. And Craig's like, we got to get out of here. <laughs> and, so, and so the game lasted about three minutes and we left. My only other basketball uh, playing on my <laughs> at a bar. Sean Miller has told the story. I didn't realize that, Don. I know Sean Miller told the story before about about that that game that you played against the Pitt guys. I didn't realize you played that game 
in jeans, though. Yeah, it was just like impromptu. It was like, let's play one-on-one. Weird. Whether they thought it or not, they were probably going to agree with me because they were trying to get me to come there, right? Yeah. So they're not yeah. going to say, you're full of crap, Don. Get, get the F out of here. <laughs> All right, so, so, we, so we started this with Cal recruiting you. What was Cal like as a head coach when you end up having him in New Jersey? Well, unfortunately, that year, I, I think I only played like 10 games a whole year, maybe even less because of my knee. I, I spent the majority of that season down in Birmingham with Dr. James Andrews oh. rehabbing my knee. Um, I'd come back every three, four weeks for, you know, like a week and then go back. Um, so I didn't get, I didn't really get to spend much time around Cal. I mean, I'd known him obviously really well. And when the season started, we had conversations and, um, so no, I didn't really get, get to be coached by him very much. But you do have a free agency story about Cal Pari though, right, Don? Yeah. So, so I mentioned the, the five-year deal I signed in Philly the year before, um, it came pretty quick, like free agency started and that deal got agreed to pretty quickly, five years, 12 and a half million. And because it's 12 and a half million, I'd had a little bit of injury concern. So I'm like thinking, you know what, I'm taking that. And, and at the time you're like, wow, you know, that's great. And it is It'd still be great if you got it today, obviously. Um, so I fast forward, I signed the deal. I play and feel I get to, um, New Jersey. And one of the, one of the first conversations I have with Cal is we're talking about the year before and, and this and that. He's like, yeah, he's like, I was surprised you signed so early because we were going to give you 20 million for five. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but he's like, you had already agreed to the deal before we could even make the offer. And so that was a bit of a bummer when I heard that news. Who was your agent? Arn Tellum at the time. That's, that's what I thought. <laughs> right. that's, I thought hard time. I thought a pro was your agent. So did you yeah, ask him? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, it, business was done a lot different back then. And I will say this, that he knew because of so, some of my injury concern mm -hmm. that if we got an offer like concrete and like, we're going to take it. And, you know, look, it ain't his fault. I could have said, wait, I, I want to wait and see what the market has to say about this. But I'm like, you know what? Let's take it. I'm good. When you are in Seattle for that, that lockout season, I mean, and you about those last four years with the Nets, Seattle, Phoenix, Miami, when you're with Seattle in the, in the lockout season, what's the craziest shit you heard Gary Payton say? There was a lot, man. He was, but I'll tell you what, he, he just... Speaking of I Iverson and Gary Payton are the two guys that are just, I mean, they could play all day at a high level all day. Uh -huh. GP could, could guard 94 feet, still get you 20, 25 points and do it again a half an hour later. Um, but he was, he was the unquestioned leader of that team for mm -hmm. a long time. I was only there one year and it was a short season, but uh, uh, he is, Unless there's somebody today that I don't know about that's better, he is unquestionably the best shit talker of all time in the NBA. Like relentless on every. I'll never forget Mike Bibby's first game uh, in preseason um, at Key Arena in Seattle, and GP just jumped him right from the start and just was in his ass, guarding him, talking shit the whole time. And I was like, wow, I've never seen anything like that. 
What's he usually saying, Don? Oh, I think a lot of it depended on who he was talking to. Um, you know, I have a good story, and I think you've heard this one, Adam. My freshman year at UCLA, I was always a good foul shooter, even in high school, even when I was younger. And I think my freshman year, I shot 82 or something like that. Um, first time we played at Oregon State, I'd already gotten off to a pretty good start. I think I was averaging probably what I finished. I was around 18 a game as a freshman. And we get there, we start the game, and from the opening tip, he is all over me. He's not guarding me, but he's every time I get the ball, he's saying stuff. He got me, and this has never happened. It never happened to me before, and it didn't happen to me after. He got me to go seven for 14 from the free throw line. <laughs> oh, Just because every time at the foul line, just nonstop. And it, and it rattled me. It did. I've never done that before. I've never gone seven for 14 at the line. But like wait, so what, what's he saying to you at the line to, to rattle you? Just, you're, I don't remember, but just things to the effect of you're not as good as what you're, you know, you're, you're not as good, basically, was the message, I think. <laughs> so he's got this, this, I mean, it's crazy because everyone always puts Gary Payton when they talk about like greatest trash talkers of all time, so far ahead of everyone else. Like he's just not, be, it's not even close. It, it's just because it was, it was all the time, Adam. It was relentless. Like some guys would, would go a couple games maybe without talking crap. He was every game, every game. That's, and, and I'm it's sure impressive. if you asked him, that's how he got himself going. You know, kind of like how Jordan looked for angles and somebody sliding him somehow. I think GP got himself going by talking crap to everybody. All right, so Don, in terms of trash talking, I I found this story last night. I've never asked you about it, but when you're with the Nuggets, you have a game where you go off for, I want to say, 38 points against the Warriors, mm-hmm. and and in and in the midst of that game, you end up getting into a fight with Chris Gatling over over trash talk. So what what's the story there? So basically what happened, well, I've been going pretty good for Denver. And, you know, so I started seeing better defense. Um, But what happened was, is Gatling was posting up. I was guarding him in the post and he elbowed me and knocked my tooth out. So I had to like go back to the locker room and and I'm fuming because I knew he did it on purpose. And I'm actually, I didn't go back to the locker room. There was like a timeout right when it happened. So I'm on the bench and and I remember Bernie saying, don't retaliate, don't retaliate. You know, we'll get your tooth fixed after the game. And I'm, and at that point I'd been in the league long enough that if I, they're, they're going to be watching for me in the next couple minutes to retaliate. And so I wait probably a quarter and Gatling's coming down the lane and I just forearm shiver. Like he's running down the middle of the court, down the lane. And I just step up and just blast him to the ground. And the refs didn't see it. There was no foul called. The crazy thing is, is me and him got suspended a game each for that, and neither fouls got called. There wasn't a foul called on either play, and we got we got a one game suspension. And so it it wasn't a fight. It was the, it was those two instances. But what's crazy about that is, because there was no fouls called, like it wasn't sent to the league for like review for like suspension or any discipline. But freaking Rod Thorne, who was at the time the, the person in charge of all that, 
just happened to be watching our game and saw oh, the play. Oh, no. Yeah. So once he saw what I did, he started asking, well, why did that happen? And then he went back and looked at the Gatling play, and we both got one game each. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Although I did find out, fine money is tax deductible. Huh. <laughs> That's helpful. <laughs> how much? How much? How much? So, how, how much did you write off during your career? Oh, I don't know. I, that was the only suspension I ever got, um, other than the PED one at the end. Mm-hmm. But for fighting and all that, there was only one. Um, but I don't know how many technicals I had. I'm, I'm guessing. I don't. Couldn't even guess. Twenty. Thirty. Did you guys have like kangaroo court like they do in baseball? Only the only team I remember where it was kind of like that. I was in Miami and Ricky Davis was on that team and he broke his ankle, I think in the preseason and he was doing, and back then it was different. Like you rehab somewhere else typically, like nowadays they have practice facility and all this training staff, like you rehab at the practice facility back then it wasn't like that. Like your rehab most likely was somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so he was rehabbing somewhere else. Well, he wasn't coming to the games. Like you're supposed to rehab, wherever else but then when it's a game night like you show up to the game and nobody told him so we're going to uh we have a road trip we're going to boston and indiana and there's like two days in between the games between boston and indiana and so we play in boston we get on plane and we fly and we we don't go to indiana pat riley takes us to atlantic city and just for a night of you know whatever you want to do gamble or whatever and so as we're getting off the bus, our trainers handed envelopes to people, which is unusual because we'd already gotten our per diem. You know, you get your per diem when you get on the plane or when you get off the plane, depending on the team, on the first leg of the trip. So he's handing out envelopes. And, and, and I'm like, what's this? He's like, it's, uh, it's, it's money for your entertainment tonight, courtesy of Ricky Davis. They have been <laughs> fining him every time he didn't show up to a game. And that money went for us to gamble in Atlantic City. <laughs> that's that's team bonding. Very altruistic. Yeah, that's that's nice of him. That's yeah. nice of him. But so so Riley really got it, huh? I learned more in a year and year and a quarter, I'd call it, from him than I did my entire NBA career. Like in terms of preparation, in terms of toughness in terms of x's and o's in terms of psychology of human nature things off the court that you know we'd have conversations about on the plane or whatever um just there's a reason he's been so successful his entire life and just i mean i was blown away yeah because you know i knew who he was and i even had talked to him a few times briefly but being on that team man i i learned so much that year year and year and a quarter or whatever it was Jimmy Butler and and Dwayne Wade have talked about like I've heard them both separately talk about how like in today's NBA they still run things I think that's in a similar way because Riley's running everything so it's this mentality they say like a lot of guys in the league just aren't built for that like like what it takes to play for the Heat because of that like what are some of those specifics Don in terms of like the workouts I think it's Rex Chapman's talked about like some of the running stuff they had him do like what 
what is it like? Why is it different mentally to play for the Heat and play for Pat Riley than it is? Because they're, they're, the level of accountability is so much higher than anywhere that I was. I can't speak to like the Spurs or other teams that have been really successful because I haven't been there. But just the teams that I was on, yeah, I mean, it starts with the conditioning test. You have to pass a conditioning test in the preseason when training camp starts or you have to do it every day until you pass it um, before practice. And so just from that standpoint, it's hard. Like you got to really be in really good condition to pass it. Um, and then it's just about, you know, getting all the, the accountability in the weight room, um, in practice, the attention to detail. Um, but in return for that, what doesn't get talked about a lot is that organization is first class everything. You know, now everybody stays in five-star hotels. It Back then in 2000, they stayed at four seasons every road trip. And it wasn't like that for other teams back then. So the reward was we're going to treat you great, but we're going we're gonna to ask and expect even more from you as players. So if, if that's the standard, and it's been the standard for, for so long, why is it so difficult for so many other organizations to replicate that? Because I think the, the presence of Pat Riley um, is hard to duplicate. You know, I think that, you know, when, when you sit down with Pat Riley, you're kind of like moving around in your seat a little bit. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. Pat freaking Riley right here. And so I think that, in, in, in a, and I'm assuming it's the same with Greg Popovich, right? Like you sit down with him, it's probably the same. Um, so I think it starts there. And then, you know, they've had a lot of continuity there too. You know, a lot of the same people that when I was there are still there. Um from front office people all the way down to the equipment managers. Mm. And so I think when you start with that and, and you just learn how to do it a certain way, you can sustain that. I think it's starting it, you know, but again, I, I would say to answer your question, no, it's, it's because not every organization has a Pat Riley at the top. So, so what hotels were you staying at with the bullets? <laughs> Marriott, <laughs> Marriott, um, it depends. We stayed at some nice hotels. My point was, is that you would stay like the Ritz Carlton and the Marina Del Rey, everybody stayed at when they played uh-huh. the Lakers and Clippers. Right. So that's a nice hotel, obviously. But then other cities, you might not be in a Ritz Carlton or four seasons. The heat back then, it was four seasons, every city, no doubt. Let you go. I know we'll, we'll bring you back for, for uh, some NBA draft talk, if it's cool with you, but, but I did want to hit you on a, a couple quick hitters. Um, yeah who's the one guy that maybe you played against in the NBA that never really broke out, but seeing him in practice all the time, you were like, wow, this guy's much better than anybody has any clue about. You know, who's a guy that I've always, I've always talked about um, when this comes up and I never played with him. I played against him. And for you Philly guys, you'll know exactly who I'm talking about was an underrated player, underrated defender. In fact, one of the best defenders I ever played against, on-ball defenders, Doug West. Mm. Like, really gave me problems um, on offense. And, you know, when I was healthy and playing, there wasn't a lot of guys that that I, like, looked and said, man, I I have trouble scoring on him. There's a few, Bruce Bowen being another one. Um, But Doug West, to me, was a really underrated player in in my day. I think he was a couple years older than me, wasn't he? Yeah, he yeah, was. I think he, I think he was a senior like when you were a freshman. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So speak, speaking of like Alonzo 
along that same line of thinking, when you're in Denver, you're with rookie Antonio McDice. And he was one of the like original, just crazy athletes from that time. What was he like in practice as a rookie? Well, I got traded there um, during training camp and he was a rookie. And so I hadn't seen him before. And, but I had been in the league and and I've told Adam this before, like when you've been in the league, like you're not surprised by much. It's like, if you see a guy jump high, you're like, yeah, yeah, I've seen that before. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, if a guy's really quick, you're like, okay, yeah, I've seen quick guys. It's whatever. But when I saw McDice for the first time, elevate on that turnaround jumper he had my jaw was on the ground i'd Hmm. never seen somebody like i'd seen guys jump in transition or even in the half court like to dunk but for him to turn and shoot how high he jumped was incredible and that just triggered my memory adam to answer your last question yeah the guy who i played with who didn't get enough just do and it's for other stuff is Mahmoud. Mahmoud was like, I don't even know how to explain how good he was. And I think his, his religious beliefs got in the way. His Tourette's got in the way when he was right. I've never, like he was, he was Allen Iverson before Allen Iverson. He really was. I mean, same guy. And maybe I'm not going to say he, he would have been better, but I think you would have been comparing those two a lot had Mahmoud, um, you know, when he was right in, 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 you know, doing what he was doing. Cause he was, he was electric. There's games that year in Denver where I literally would just run up and down the court and we were just watching him. Like, I think he had 54 in the Delta center one night. It was like, <laughs> it was like unbelievable. He had 20 and 20 uh, in Phoenix one night. It's like, he was he was so good and nobody will ever talk about him the way they should have because of how his career ended and just the stuff that went on during it. Last one for me, Don, is who who are your best hangs in the NBA? And who are the guys that you still miss thinking about just hanging out with off the court? Gugliotta's one. Chapman's another. Rex, he was great. I mean, there's so many guys. I mean, there's guys that like you wouldn't think are good dudes just because of stuff that's happened. Like Derek Coleman's one of my favorite teammates I've ever had. Really. We lived in the same building when I played in Philly. Um, You know, Jalen Rose is one of my favorite teammates, but that Washington group that I played cards with all the time, Overton and Mitchell Butler Mm -hmm. and Calvert Chaney's a great, great teammates. There's, there's a lot and you have to, um, if you don't have good relationships and good guys to hang out with it, the season is so long and, and just torture it. You have to get out and do stuff with guys. You have to play cards. You have to like the seed that you have way too. I, I just had this conversation the other day with somebody it's, you can only stay at the practice facility for so long. Like once you do your weight, your, your rehab, your weights and practice, like you still have a ton of time. And if you don't have guys to hang out with, if you don't have, people on the road to do stuff with it's miserable and so fortunately for me i always seem to find guys that were fun to uh to hang with marley's another in miami we hung out a lot together um but fortunately i was able to um you know be versatile in who i hung out with mm-hmm. if that makes sense you know yeah, it does. Like, I, i'm willing to do lots of different things i guess 
Well, <laughs> I get God, it. Last, I get it. Last, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. God, last, last one for me. Last one for me. When uh, basketball finally resumes, uh, and I let's let's assume there's no no season this year, but who who knows? But year two of Kobe White, what does it look like? <laughs> well. Until there's a coaching change there, I'm I'm not sure, man. But I, I'm hopeful that we still have a pre-draft process. I'm hopeful that they're going to move the draft sure. back um, to August or September, which, by the way, would change the entire NBA calendar forever if they do that. I would I would assume. Um, but selfishly for me, Adam, you know how much I love doing pre-draft, and I um, CAA's got a monster class again this year, um, so would love the opportunity to work with those guys. Um, but yeah, hopefully we'll we'll have another Kobe White. They don't. There's not a lot of Kobe Whites that I've had in the pre-draft process that are are way better than you thought they were on the court, but even better kid off the court. Yeah, Adam, we we lifted the restraining order at one point during this year with Adam, and then we had to slap it back on because it was getting a little scary with Adam <laughs> and Kobe White. Yeah. Love the kid. Love the kid. Yeah, I know you do. Uh, Don, if, if uh, actually we're going to ask to reject in the screen question, but 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 before we do that, you just mentioned it. Can you share who's in in your uh, pre-draft class? Yeah, uh, Obi Toppin's one. Tyrese Halliburton's another. Ashton Hagen's. Um, I don't have the list in front of me. We and we've had Zoom calls with most of them. Devin Vassell from Florida State's one of them. Um, Oh, I'd have to look at the list again because it's a lot. There's like at least 10, maybe a couple more too. Oh, uh, Malachi Flynn from San Diego mm. State's another. Oh, wow. Um, so it's a good group. And I think a lot of first round picks there, not that they all have to be first round picks, but um, yeah. So hopefully we do have it. All right. So let's, let's close with the rejecting the screen question. It's the final question we ask all of our guests. Game on the line. Need a bucket. Let's go with any of your former teammates that you're going to give the ball to. Reject the screen. Go ISO. Who am I giving the ball to? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Got to think through. See, that, see, this is a hard question for me because I played on 17 different teams. I know. <laughs> I'm going to say... What, what what makes great podcasting is just going through all of those rosters of all 17 teams while we, <laughs> while we sit here. And, and well, Sean Marriott said that six of those teams were paying him at one time. So, yeah. <laughs> a... Man, that's a tough one. Game winner. Because hmm. here's the other part, too, guys. I'm thinking of team bet the better teams I was on. So, cause like more meaningful games, like I played in a lot of bullets games that were not meaningful. You just mentioned one of them, like losing by 38 <laughs> to, to another team. Um, I think the one guy that I would want shooting the last shot or ISO last for the win, it's gotta be Iverson. Cause he was such a good ISO player. You know, if it's a catch and shoot, maybe it's not him, but if we're talking clocks running down, you got the ball one-on-one, -on -one, get me a bucket. It's either him or Mahmoud, you know, to kind of tie wow. it all together. You know, Mahmoud was that good, um, especially with the ball and off the bounce. So I would say Iverson and or Mahmoud. Don, we really do appreciate it. Always great to talk to you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you, Don.
so I know Don's your guy. I mean, you talk to Don all the time. And mm-hmm. I give a lot of people heat for using the term my guy, but Don is actually your guy. <laughs> he, is. he is. He your is. Guy. Yeah. That's my friend. He's my friend. I'll, I'll go beyond my guy, which you've clarified. Yeah, he's before. a good Sometimes friend. Sometimes you have to separate. Don is, uh, I think he's misunderstood. I mean, people have seen what sort of happened throughout his career. He even referenced it in our interview about like not being a good guy kind of thing. Uh, but, but Don, he's, he's been a really good friend to me and he's also uh, a really talented analyst. If people forget about his playing career, second year, most improved player. I mean, injuries derailed him, but he's the pac all-time leading scorer, which he'll tell you. 26.08, how many points he scored in a UCLA UCLA jersey. He even got heat from that at the time. People didn't want him to break the UCLA scoring record because it was sacred. And you know, Lou Alcindor only played three seasons. But what Don accomplished throughout his college career, what he ended up doing in the pros, he was a high, highly ranked recruit. I mean, I he's had a remarkable career. People remember him throwing balls at players and all that, having this chip on his shoulder. But that's also... But but that's also what made him great was his competitiveness, his work ethic, and then now just how seriously he takes his craft of of calling games, whether it's you know doing stuff for the Clippers or Pac-12 Network. And I just I really respect Don, who he is as an analyst, who he is as a person, and certainly I loved him as a player. All right, so here's the top ten Pac-12 all-time leading scores. Don McLean is one. Sean Elliott's two, and he referenced Sean. At Arizona, that's the reason why he didn't go there since he wasn't going to play there right away. Jason Randall, Stanford, who played for the Knicks. Todd Lichty, remember him from Stanford in the 80s. Adam Keefe in the 90s in Stanford. Trace Tinkle, who I'm not that familiar with, but you, of course, are being out there at Oregon State this year. And then Gary Payton at Oregon State. And, and GP, he told the GP story about that was still, he was a good, a good free throw shooter. And then GP completely rattled him at the free throw line. Jason Capono, who I remember being outside the Heat locker room in 2006. Is it 2006? Yeah, 2006 when they won the title. And and Capono and Capono's on that team. Everyone's in a locker room, you know, spraying champagne, whatever. And they come out and Capono, I think it was his girlfriend at the time, looks at him and says, have you been drinking? I'm like, what? Like, I couldn't tell at the time whether <laughs> you're being sarcastic, mad, or what. But I'll never forget it. We'll have to and get then, him on the podcast and ask him about it. And then Harold Miner, Baby Jordan. And then mm-hmm. your guy, Eddie House, at 10. Eddie House, ASU. It's, it, it's also interesting, I will note, that growing up, like Don McLean, a few years older than me, I was a huge Don McLean fan. A guy was such a fan. Him, Tracy Murray, they played with Gerald Matkins, Mitchell Butler. Uh, even his freshman year, he played with Pooh Richardson, who's Philly guard, uh, great, great point guard at UCLA. I was a huge fan of Don McLean's. And so it's a weird thing, and I know you've experienced this too. There are guys that you like root for and you're fans of when you're a kid. And then in our business, to get to know them later and actually to become friends, it's a very strange dynamic. I mean, there's times where Don and I are talking like late into the night about certain things or games he played in or situations he had. And, I'm, and I have to like, whoa, I, it's so strange. It's like separate people. It's my friend, but it's also the guy that I 
that I grew up uh, as a fan of. So, and I told him that early on. So we we got past that. There's there's not a lot of fanboying stuff still going on. Well, I'm sure he likes it because because honestly, how, how many how many people would come up to him and say, "Yeah, Don McLean, huge fan, huge." Fan. Doesn't happen as much anymore. Doesn't happen as much anymore. Not as much as it should. Not as much as it should. I'm just glad that he got that wheatgrass in his diet from Michael Cage in Philly to help things <laughs> help things out of it. All right, you can follow Adam on Twitter at Naismith Lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C O S L O V. At rejecting underscore the underscore screen. That's on Instagram at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Locked on NBA theme weeks. Check them out across the network. Locked on NBA, your team every day. Also, Hollinger and Duncan that comes out every Monday. Chad Ford's big board trying to get Chad on the program as well to get into his story. And you can also get Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd. But a bunch of the teams, I know Locked On Rockets had done a really nice behind-the-scenes of what game day operations are like. And also, Monte Ellis was really good with Wes Goldberg on Locked On Warriors. So I suggest Mm -hmm. you all check that out as well. Adam, thanks, pal. You are the best.